we're in a series from the book of Jonah. Not what you remember as a kid, this little book packs a punch. Dive in with us as we continue our series when God's grace doesn't make sense. And so last week we caught a glimpse of the person of Jonah and the task to which he had been called. And we saw that Jonah, this prophet of God, was called by God to go and preach to the Ninevites. These were the arch enemies of his own people. They were a terrible people, a violent people, a cruel people. But Jonah, God's dove, that's what we said his name means, dove. We could say God's sign of salvation was being asked by God to be that dove, not just for his own people, but as well for the Ninevites. And somehow, Jonah intuitively knew the possibilities that laid ahead should he carry out his task. That just possibly the Ninevites, by some miracle, would repent of their sin, and thus God would respond with grace. I've been reading a book lately entitled A Letter in the Scroll by a rabbi, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who points out in his book that whereas the Greeks and even the pagan nations had what we call oracles, that is pronouncements of the future, pronouncements of what would be, pronouncements of what the future would hold, the Jews had not oracles, they had prophetic messages. And those prophetic messages were, in essence, forewarnings from God that such and such was about to occur unless the people would turn from their ways. An oracle, he said, predicts the future. A prophet warns against it. And that is why throughout the Bible, we see God, in essence, we read of God relenting or changing his mind. He says such and such is going to happen, but then he responds to what people do, how people respond to that prophecy. And Jonah knew this full well, that that should the people of Nineveh hear the message and somehow respond to the message, repenting of their sin, that God would turn away from judgment. And so in verse 3, we read of Jonah trying to flee from the Lord, that is literally escape the presence of the Lord, somehow to get away from God. For he didn't want to fulfill his call and possibly see God's grace extended towards the Ninevites. Oh, God's grace was great when it came to him and to his people, but God's grace was not so great when it came to those sinners who deserve punishment. And so we had two takeaways last week. The one is this, that in God's economy, there are no good people and bad people, but we are all sinners in need of God's grace. Amen? And secondly... The good news is there's no one beyond God's grace. Aren't you glad for that this morning? There's no one beyond God's grace. By the way, inside your bulletin, you may have seen there's a little note sheet. If you some have asked, um, could we have the note sheets there so you can take, take notes if you like to do that? And so there's, there's only sinners, and yet no one is beyond God's grace. Now, there's something else before we dive into our text this morning. There's something else we need to take note of regarding Jonah. And that is, if you go with me to Matthew chapter 12, Matthew chapter 12, and then verse 16, we see there that Jesus speaks of the sign of Jonah. And we can't ignore that as we talk about Jonah. 
that Jesus referred a few times in his ministry to the person of Jonah, the work of Jonah. He speaks of the sign of Jonah. Look with me at Matthew 12, beginning at verse number 38. And it says this, some of the Pharisees and teachers of the law said to him, teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, and we'll be reading about that soon, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something or someone greater than Jonah is here. And then if you go with me to chapter 16, Matthew chapter 16, we read something similar. But again, Jesus making the same kind of reference. Matthew 16, beginning at verse 1, says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. They were relentless, weren't they? They kept on coming back with the same thing. He replied, when evening comes, you say it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today, it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. You see, we read here how the people of Jesus' day, and especially these religious leaders, were always looking for a sign, some proof that Jesus was whom he said he was. And listen, the Gospel of John shows us Jesus gave signs. He was constantly doing miracles, even raising the dead. But they were looking for something more. I don't know what that could have been. But Jesus said that the only sign that would be given to them would be the sign of the prophet Jonah. First of all, referring to the fact that Jonah had spent three days in the belly, three nights in the belly of a fish, eventually being expelled from that alive, and that in the same way he himself will be three days in the grave and eventually expelled alive from that grave. But I want you to notice something else that Jesus says, for he says that we read it in chapter 12, Matthew 12, and now something greater than Jonah is here or in the Greek, literally, greater. Not something or someone, just simply greater than Jonah is here. In other words, Jesus says that he is the new Jonah. He is the greater Jonah. He is one like Jonah, and yet so much, more, so much superior to him that Jesus is the true and greater Jonah, the true and greater dove, God's sign of salvation for all mankind. Can you say amen? And thus many commentators point to the fact that although the sign of Jonah in, in some ways is the three days Jesus spent in the grave, just as Jonah spent three days and nights inside the fish, that there are other hints of the work of Jesus Christ throughout the story of Jonah, and especially, most especially the fact that Jonah was being called to preach to the Gentiles. And we know that although at times Jesus made it clear that he came first of all, first and foremost for his own people, Israel. But we see him time and again reaching out to non-Israelites, a foreshadowing of the, of, of, the, of the breadth and the depth of the gospel message, reaching beyond one nation, eventually reaching Jew and Gentile alike, so that the Apostle Paul could say that I'm not ashamed of this gospel, but it is the power of God for all who believe 
believe first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. And so we see even in Jesus' ministry here on this earth, we see, for example, Jesus ministering to that Samaritan woman at the well. Jesus ministering to that Canaanite or Phoenician woman whose daughter was demon-possessed. That Roman centurion whose servant was paralyzed. That Roman guard who stood at the foot of the cross and cried out, Surely this is the Son of God. And what we're going to see in this chapter that we're looking at this morning that although Jonah was running from his call to preach to a Gentile or pagan people, that we find that through his life, even in the midst of his storm, a whole boatload of Gentiles, of pagans, come to recognize and worship the true God of heaven and earth. For you see, Jonah's life becomes a foreshadowing of the greater dove, the greater Jonah, Jesus, the one who came to bring the grace of God to all people by giving his life, as the Bible says, as a ransom for many. Not for a few, not for some, but for many. And so I just want us to tuck that in the back of our minds as we continue through this study, that, that, that yes, Jonah was God's dove at his time, this sign of salvation for his people and for the Ninevites. But, but more so, Jonah becomes a foreshadowing of the greater dove, Jesus Christ himself and what God sent him to do because God so loved the whole world, right, that he gave his one and only son. And so as we continue with Jonah's story, we continue to see God's grace in action, even in the midst of a storm that comes into his life. For as Jonah tries to run from the presence of God and escape God's call, God insists on interrupting his plans, turning his life into a complete tailspin. For after all, listen, some of us need to remember this. There's no escaping God. There's no escaping God and there's no escaping his grace. And so let's follow the story. In verse number four here, we see, we see, we read of this storm. For as Jonah tries to flee on a ship headed for Tarshish, 2,500, yes, 2,500 miles away to the opposite side of the Mediterranean Sea, we read of how this terrible storm pops up. Now listen, we have to think of this, that this is most likely the time of year that would have been safe for a ship to travel from Joppa to, Char to Tarshish. For sure, there were other times of the year when the sea would have become too dangerous for such travel, and the ships would be left in port for the winter, even as we read in the New Testament in Paul's travels. And thus, we can rightly assume that during this time of year, it would have been deemed safe for a ship such as this to make such a long journey all the way across the Mediterranean Sea. And thus, when this, when this storm pops up to these sailors, the fact that a storm of such proportions would crop up during this time of year gives them a clue that this is not just a normal storm, that this is not just some fluke of nature. In fact, verse 4 refers to a great wind and a violent storm. And the words here speak of, speak of a storm with hurricane-force winds and a storm that has become a storm of destruction. And the words used to describe speak of, we might say, a storm of wrath and a storm of judgment. And the sailors immediately recognize that there must be some divine force, some God behind it. They recognized that this was no ordinary storm that just happened to pop up at the wrong time of year. They intuitively knew that there was something supernatural taking place around them, that this was a storm that represented, at least for them, the wrath of the gods. 
And some might think of a storm such as this as a sign that God was angry with Jonah. And thus he was trying to kill Jonah. And, well, these sailors, they weren't worth much more either. I mean, if you can imagine the kind of lives they lived and the gods that they served. But you see, from our side of the story is we kind of know what's going to be happening here. We recognize that this storm is actually a sign of God's grace. For by means of this storm, you see, God is seeking to get Jonah back on track. God is trying to capture Jonah's attention. He refuses to let Jonah escape. He refuses to let Jonah run from his presence. In a sense, we might say God is chasing after Jonah. Imagine, if you will, this terrible, life-threatening storm is the grace of God at work in Jonah's life. And I want to ask us this morning, just for a moment, I wonder how many of the storms that come into our lives might actually be a sign of God's grace. That is, he's, his means of calling us to himself, of capturing our attention, of drawing us to himself, of getting us back on track, of bringing us to a place of salvation. Not that such is the case with every bad thing that happens in our lives, but we have to ask the question, when things begin to happen, they just seem to pop up out of nowhere, we need to begin to ask the question, could this storm be a sign of God's grace? And there are some of us here today, you have a testimony of how your life was suddenly spiraling downward, out of control, things were happening that you never could have imagined, and it was at that moment that you began to understand the grace of God, and you called out upon the name of Jesus. And today, you're one of his children. I think of, I think of so many people that their testimonies, we think of the, the men and women who come from Teen Challenge and the Hoving Home and the storms that have come into their lives, but how God used those storms as a time of grace to draw them to himself that they would not spiral any further away. We have to ask the question. We'll come back to that point in a moment. But as we go on, we read not just of this storm, but we begin to read about these sailors. And to have signed up, I think of these sailors, I think that to have signed up for a trip such as this, to go completely across the Mediterranean, these sailors were most likely the most expert of sailors. They knew ships. They knew the sea. They understood danger. But now, now we read, they're scared out of their wits. They're scared out of their minds. And, and what are they doing? They're beginning to throw their cargo overboard. They're doing everything they can to keep the ship from sinking or falling apart. And they begin to cry out to their gods, each one to his own god. How many of us know people become very religious during the storms of life? I mean, we saw it during 9-11, did we not? Just after 9-11, churches were packed. And notice that. Although they are pagans, they at least have this discernment to sense that there's something supernatural happening around them. And thus they begin to pray the only way they know how to pray. One commentator wrote this. I found it very interesting. The religious man, speaking about Jonah, the religious man rebels and the rebels get religious. Hmm. In fact, it's interesting that when the captain eventually finds Jonah asleep on the bottom of the boat, he calls on Jonah to pray. I mean, so think of this. Here's this pagan man, this captain of this ship, this pagan man who's calling on God's prophet to pray. I mean, how ironic is that? It's almost like things are backwards. 
But we have to ask, is it possible that there are times when the pagans, we use that word of our world, are counting on us to discern, to do the right thing, to begin to pray? I mean, listen, there, there, you know, there are some people who say, well, after 9-11, the churches were full and people were, you know, but they were just being desperate. But listen, people are looking to the church and to the people of God to help them understand what's happening in the world around them and to help them deal with their fear and to pray for them. I remember one man, I may have shared this before, that I was coaching Little League with it at the time. And suddenly, that Saturday morning afterwards, he shows up on my doorstep. He knew I was a, I, I was a Christian. He knew I was a pastor. And he showed, just showed up on my doorstep. And he's like, listen, I am so afraid. I don't know what to do. I'm so afraid. And I said to him, I said, listen, the only thing we can do is look to God. Let's pray. There on my doorstep, we prayed together. Listen, the world around us, they're counting on us to discern and to pray. And that's what these sailors were doing. And as we move along, yeah, we come back to Jonah, verse 5. And it just seems to me that all along the way, until the very end of this chapter, Jonah is failing these sailors. We first, we, you know, we find him, the Bible says, in a deep sleep. Think of it, in the midst of this incredible storm, while the crew is in a state of panic, crying out to their gods, we find Jonah in a deep sleep. Apparently, he had gone down to the deck below before the storm had begun, and he went into such a deep sleep that not even a storm, a magnitude of a hurricane, could awaken him. I mean, think of that. How many of you sleep like that? Right? Some of you do, right? I'm going to... I should ask your wife or your husband, you know? The whole house is rocking. The babies are crying. The dogs are barking, you know? The roof is coming off, and you're just still asleep. In fact, the word used here could be translated as a dead sleep. And we might ask, was this a sleep of faith and peace, like Jesus asleep in the midst of the storm on the Sea of Galilee? I would think not. But when we consider the circumstances that led up to Jonah being on this ship, it seems like this was a sleep brought on by depression, despondency, and despair. This was a sleep of a man who has begun to feel that his life doesn't make sense anymore. His life doesn't count anymore. It's a sleep of a man who just wants to give up, and he just wants to sleep it all away. Let me ask you, have you ever felt like you just couldn't get out of bed in the morning? As if you just wanted to sleep your pain and your sorrow away. Come on. I've been there. I know what that's like. It's not a happy place. It's not like, oh, God, I want to be at that place where I just, like, sleep because I'm so despondent, you know? It's a terrible place. Jonah has begun to feel as if the whole of his life has become futile. After all, he's the prophet of God, God's dove, his mouthpiece, his representative here on earth. Here he is, he's trying to run from the very God about whom his whole life has been focused, the God that he has tried to serve. And so we read of these sailors, and they say, well, you know what? Let's, let's cast lots to see whose fault this is and who can do something about this storm. And I know to us the casting of lots um, Drawing of straws, however you want to put it, might seem a bit superstitious. But, you know, we find in the Bible many times when God uses this process to reveal his will, 
or is in this case to reveal something that's been hidden. I kind of say like, and I don't want to go too far into this, but I kind of say, you know what? Like when we cast a vote at an annual business meeting, we're kind of doing the same thing. We have a process by which we kind of are trusting God for his will through a process that's not necessarily like, you know, a scriptural process. It's just the process we have. For them, the process, and we see many places in Scripture, the process was the drawing of lots. And so the lot is drawn, and the lot falls to Jonah, revealing that Jonah is the one responsible for this storm. And thus, he's the one who can do something about it. And so now, can you imagine, all eyes turn to Jonah. It's you, Jonah! But I wonder how Jonah was feeling through this whole process. Did it ever occur to him that the storm was God's way of getting his attention? Did it ever occur to him to reveal himself and say, listen, guys, before you start drawing lots, you know, I'm just going to tell you, I'm the one. It's me. It's me. So, you know, let's, you know, let's just stop it here. Or maybe he was hoping that the lot would fall to someone else by some fluke. And then everyone's eyes would be turned to them and he could kind of like slip away and get out of it. Well, Eventually, it comes to him, and they say, okay, tell us the deal. What's going on? And he begins to reveal himself, and in a sense, he confesses his sin. He's not just your average passenger who's hopped a cargo ship to go on vacation in Tarshish, but he's a Hebrew who worships, excuse me, who worships Yahweh, the God who's created all things. Not only that, but he's a prophet, a prophet who's trying to Escape God. And so the storm is getting stronger, and Jonah knows that the only hope is for the crew to get him off the ship. That means throwing him into the sea. We might say he realized that he was going to have to give up his life for the sake of the rest. The crew is hesitant to do so. You know, you know, they're like, they don't want to be responsible for taking another man's life. And so they're doing their best to try to get back to land on their own, but it's to no avail. And so eventually they do what Jonah says. They pick him up, they throw him into the sea, and the storm miraculously stops. I mean, it's, it's, it's like Jesus standing up in the ship, in, in, out on the Sea of Galilee, says, peace be still, and everything gets calm. As soon as Jonah, I can just picture it, as soon as Jonah is thrown overboard and he hits the water, everything, the storm is gone. It miraculously disappears. And here's the thought this morning, that for those pagan sailors to be saved from the storm, Jonah had to be thrown overboard thrown into what we might consider to be the wrath of God. In fact, for the ancients, the, the, the sea was a place of judgment, of wrath. We read in the, in, in the book of Revelation of, of the sea giving up its dead like Hades and hell. It was no pleasant place. And they were constantly trying to work to kind of calm the, or tame the sea. And so in their minds, they're throwing Jonah into the wrath of God. That is, for the many to be saved, one man was going to have to experience the judgment of God. One man was going to have to die, or so it seemed. And we need to pause here for a moment and think back to the sign of Jonah. The church, isn't that exactly what Jesus has done for us? One man gave his life. For the many. 
Caiaphas, the high priest, spoke a word of prophecy, not even realizing it. When he said to the Sanhedrin, he said, you do not realize that it is better for you that one man die for the people than that the whole nation perish. Or Paul writes in Romans chapter 5, but the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of the one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Oh, the gospel tells us, listen, church, the gospel tells us that the life of one man, Jesus, was sacrificed for the sake of the many. That at the cross, in a sense, we might say, Jesus was thrown into the sea of God's wrath as he took upon him all of the sins of this world. Your sins, my sins, the sins of past generations, present and future generations. All that we, the many, might experience the peace and salvation of God, that the wrath of God would would, would would be calm, that, that, that the storm would stop. I want to tell us this morning, Jesus is the greater Jonah. He's the greater Jonah, and all we need to do is believe and receive what he's done for us. But here, in the midst of this chapter, there's some awesome lessons that we learn about God's grace. Again, some takeaways. And the first thing I want us to take away this morning is to begin to think, consider that the storms that come into our lives just may be God's way of extending grace towards us. His way of capturing our attention, drawing us to himself, disciplining us, getting us back on track. Listen, I've seen it over and over again in people's lives, even in my own life, where the storm comes and the storm awakens our eyes, our hearts, our minds, our spirits. And we begin to realize God's trying to speak to us. God's trying to bring us back to himself. Listen, God could have just left Jonah to himself, allowing him to go to Tarshish and end up doing who knows what. Or he could have allowed Jonah to die at sea in the midst of the storm and maybe all of the sailors with him. After all, Jonah had rebelled against God. His heart was filled with so much hatred and pride and prejudice that he couldn't go, even go to Nineveh to preach a message of impending doom. Jonah was a sinner who deserved judgment. But listen, we see here this morning that God doesn't give up on Jonah. As some have said, he's a God of second chances. Aren't you glad for that this morning? He's a God of second chances. And by sending this storm into Jonah's life, God is giving Jonah a second chance, another opportunity to bring his life back in line with God's will, another opportunity to experience the presence of God at, at work within his life and through his life and thus experience the blessing of his grace. Oh, Jonah quickly learns he cannot run from God, for God is not going to give up on him, but rather out of a heart of love and mercy and grace, God chases Jonah down. And we read in Hebrews chapter 12, and we won't, we won't read it all this morning, but we read there how the writer of the Hebrews says, listen, God disciplines those whom he loves, and at the moment, it doesn't feel very good. Nobody likes the storms of life. No one likes being told, here's a little pow-pow and go to your room, you know? But the writer says, but remember this. God is treating you as a father treats his children. He's doing it for your own good because he loves you. 
And sometimes the storms of our lives are God's grace at work in our lives to draw us to himself, to save us from ourselves, to preserve us. And rather than getting angry at God for the storms that come, because how many of us know if we're not careful, we become angry. Rather than becoming bitter, maybe we ought to look and see if there's not something God is trying to say to us through it, something he's trying to do within our lives. Could it be that your storm, maybe the storm you're experiencing today, is actually an act of God's grace in your life? But the second thing I want us to take away this morning is that to experience God's grace in the midst of the storm, we will have to give up control. We're going to have to give up control. You see, as long as Jonah remained on that ship, as long as Jonah tried to preserve his life, he was doomed and all those with him. Once, however, he allowed himself to be thrown into the sea, thus thrown into, into the hands of God, we might say, he experienced the salvation of God, the grace of God, as did all the rest. And when Jonah was thrown overboard, listen, I'm sure the sailors thought this is the end for him. And he must have thought this is the end for me. And he must have thought he was being thrown strictly into the wrath and judgment of God. And in one sense, he was. And yet what he eventually found was a sea filled with God's grace. As eventually, if you know the story, God sends the big fish to save his life. And he's given a second chance by God. Listen, Jesus said when we try to hold on to our lives, we will lose them. But when we're willing to lose our lives, we will find them. The Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 12, we looked at it this past Wednesday night. He speaks about his thorn in the flesh. You remember that? His thorn in the flesh. Whatever that was, it was something, that it, was, it was like a storm that had come into his life, and he couldn't get rid of it. I'm sure he did everything he could to get rid of that thorn, to get rid of that storm. We read of how he prayed over and over again for God to remove it, but eventually he had to give up control as the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness, and so it will be with us as we give up control of our lives and, la and allow ourselves to fall into the hands of God, we might say, as we trust him with our lives, as we trust him in the midst of our storms, that we will find love and mercy and grace available to save us, to help us. So rather than getting angry, bitter, depressed, we throw ourselves into the hands of God saying, God, I don't understand this. I don't know what's going on here. God, I can't do this anymore myself. God, you know I've prayed over and over again for you to fix this thing. God, I've run to the doctors. God, I've run to the counselors. God, I've run to the pastor. I've gone to the deacons. God, I've gone here. I've gone there. I've tried to work it all out. I just don't know what's happening. The storm seems to get be getting bigger and bigger. I feel like everything's about to fall apart. But God, I'm just going to stand on your word. I'm going to say your grace is sufficient for me. Your grace is sufficient for me. I'm going to trust that your grace is going to take me through, that you're going to be the one to keep me, to help me, to save me. And the third thing is this, that as we trust God in the midst of our storms, God just may use the storms of our lives to demonstrate his grace to someone else. Can if you come, please? That amazingly, what we see in this account is not only God's grace at work in Jonah's life, but God's grace at work in the lives of these sailors. 
But by the end of these storms, just picture it. Just imagine these pagan Gentile sailors who worship all these other gods that they've been crying out to. They've been given a revelation of the true God of heaven and earth. And by the end of the, of the chapter, they're worshiping him. They're worshiping the Lord Yahweh, Jehovah. Oh, I'm reminded once again this morning that no one is beyond God's grace. And sometimes it just might be through the storms of our lives and what they see God do in us and through us and how we respond to those storms and how God's grace flows into our lives. It just might be that through the storms of our lives that, that, that many come to know the grace of God for themselves. And I ask you this morning, is it possible that your storm might be used to bring God's grace to someone else, to lead them to the knowledge of the God that we sang about earlier today, that he's a good, good father. He's not just a God we have to appease, we got to cry out to, and God, God, I'll, I'll do this and I'll do that, and then you'll take care of me. No, no, he's a good, good father. He's perfect. He's perfect in all of his ways. And so we put our trust in him. Listen, I want you to know this morning God wants you to know this morning. There's grace available for you in the midst of your storm. There's grace available for you in the midst of your storm. So I ask you this morning, are there some storms in your life today? Are there things happening to you that are just kind of rocking your world, things that you can't understand or things you just know you can't handle on your own? Well, listen, sometimes we're like those sailors. We think we have life all figured out. We know the sea. We know what to expect. We know the weather. And suddenly a storm pops out of nowhere and just rocks our, the ship of our lives. Suddenly that child dies. Sometimes we get that bad news from the doctor. Suddenly we lose the job, whatever it might be. The storm just pops out of nowhere. Sometimes we're like Jonah, caught up in our own self-pity and pain, asleep at the bottom of the boat, maybe even running from God. But then suddenly a storm pops up to get your attention. Whatever the case, however it's come, today if you find yourself in the midst of a storm, this is the time God's calling you to abandon your life into his hands to trust him with your life. To be able to say with the Apostle Paul, when I'm weak, then I'm strong. For his grace is sufficient for me. This is the time for you to say, God, I need you today. I can't, I can't work this out. I can't figure it out. God, I can't pray it away. And so I just put my life into your hands trusting that in the midst of this storm, somehow your grace is going to pierce through. And I'm going to understand you in a way maybe that I've never understood you before. 